0: You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. Let's look real quick at John chapter 6 verse 22. Just some quick thoughts that I want to share with you to kind of tie in with some of the things that we were looking at last week as Jesus calms the storm for his disciples. It says in John chapter 6 verse 22, on the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there. And that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs... But because you ate your fill of the loaves. All right, so this goes back to the last two weeks that we've looked at John chapter six, the feeding of the 5,000 and the calming of the storm. Um, In that feeding of the 5,000 story, we talked about Jesus creating intentional opportunities for us to appropriate the knowledge that we're gaining about him into our daily lives. And so we saw some truths from that passage that we can trust God to provide for our daily needs, both physical and spiritual. And that we will always be confronted with problems that are too big for human solutions but are never too big for Jesus's power, right? So he exposes everybody to this. The multitudes and his disciples get to witness this miracle with the feeding of the 5,000. Then we saw last week the walking on the water that we're to trust Jesus and his good plan during life's storms, realizing that oftentimes the storm is designed to protect us from greater danger while helping us come to know him in a deeper manner. Remember, that's where we saw that the, the multitudes were wanting to crown Jesus king and seize him, even against his will to make him king. I told you the disciples would have been ripe for that type of uh, response, that they, they liked the power, they liked the influence, they liked the authority, and so they would have been very susceptible to that temptation to also try to seize Jesus. So what does Jesus do? Sticks him in a boat, puts him in the middle of a sea where there's a storm, that to them probably looked like, man, God just stuck us in a, in a dangerous situation. We talked about the fact that he removed them from a far more dangerous situation, that temptation to give in to their pride and potentially... Uh, um, give them a faulty view of Christ and his role, right? And so he removes them from that temptation, puts them in a storm where they are probably thinking, man, we're in a lot of danger. We talked about the fact they are completely protected and guarded in that spot, right? That, that Jesus knows exactly where they are, walks directly to them, that he controls everything going on around them. He controls it and is able to stop it in a moment's notice and then carries them to the other side immediately, right? So the truth we talked about last week, when going through storms, uh, be quick to pray for help, believing that he sees and will respond. And then when going through storms, don't lose hope in the fourth watch. That fourth watch means the, the last part of the night, because it says that the disciples labored throughout the night, waiting to be delivered from this. And finally, Jesus shows up. So we said, don't lose hope in the fourth watch. Jesus always comes, keep expecting him to show. And so I challenged you last week, pray and seek to encourage people that are experiencing storms right now uh, to keep them pressing on. Today, we look at this concept of, what does it mean to trust him when our bellies aren't full? Because Jesus says to the crowd, you're coming to me because I filled your bellies yesterday. And that's your motivation for coming back. You want more, and you're not really seeing the signs is what he says. Now they saw the signs, right? Right? but they're not really grasping the spiritual significance of them. So he says, ultimately, you haven't seen these signs because you're simply showing up not to worship me as the Messiah. That would have been what it looked like to see the signs, to show up in obedience and submission and worship to him. Instead, they show up wanting to know what's for breakfast, right? Like, what are you going to give to me today? So from a summary sentence standpoint, Jesus works in our life with the goal of having us trust him, not only in times of plenty, but also in times of great need, so that we learn to hope in him always, which brings great glory to God. Jesus works in our life, so he, he does things in our life. He, he provides for us. He works signs, potentially. He, he does miraculous things in our life with the goal of having us trust him, not only in times of plenty, but also in times of great need so that we learn to hope in him always, which brings great glory to God. For our kids, Jesus wants us to trust him in good times and bad times. This is a great truth for our youth that are coming back from a week of isolation in the North Carolina mountains, where they're just being exposed to God's word daily. They're spending time with Christians daily. They are protected in some sense from the things of this world, right? And so they come back and they're going to be thrust back into their normal routines, their normal temptations, their normal frustrations, and now it's going to be more difficult to do some of the things that they were challenged to do while there, right? And, and a sign of growing and maturing faith is learning to trust God when times are difficult, not just when times are good. It's far easier to trust him and to follow him when times are good than when times are bad. But it's when those times are difficult and trying and hard that we really show our faith to be genuine and true. We said the people here are motivated and moved by full bellies rather than full hearts. Their perspective is very limited to the here and the now. So the things that Jesus is doing for them, it's not leading them to love him and to trust him more. It's just creating a a bigger desire for for things. A a greater want desire is, is being cultivated in them through this. And so Jesus addresses it. Jesus calls it out. They desire Jesus as a means to satisfy their longings for life. They are materially motivated to follow him. And we're, we're making these indictments against them because fast forward, we kind of know where this chapter's going, right? That at the end of this chapter, it says that many of these people never followed him again. That when he challenges them with some of this teaching, they walk away. When they realize breakfast is not gonna be served today, that there isn't a coming lunch today, they walk away and they never follow him again. And so the challenge, the, the thing that Jesus is, is, is trying to draw out and address and help them to see is that you're only interested in me as long as I'm giving you what you want. As soon as things shift and it's not what you want, doesn't matter if it's what God wants them but doesn't matter what the the bigger perspective, the bigger picture is. They are so limited in their perspective. If it's not what they want, then they're not going to be interested in following him any longer. All right? So a couple of Points that I want to give you from this, and then I want to give you some implications, some, some truths to kind of take away in regards to how do we keep trusting him? How do we keep following him when times are difficult, when, when our bellies aren't being filled the way that we want them to be? How do we not walk away, and how do we keep ourselves encouraged to follow him and to trust him? All right, so from this passage, number one, respond to God's work by trusting him more rather than wanting more. For our kids, trust God for who He is, not for what you want Him to give you. That's the idea that Jesus is trying to connect them with, is that He wants them to respond to the work that He's been doing by submitting to Him and trusting Him no matter what the future looks like, rather than simply coming to Him requesting a specific type of future. Here's what we want, Jesus. And if you can't do it our way, then we're gonna walk away. If you won't be our king and function the way that we want you to and take care of us and provide for us and give to us the way that we think we need to be served, then we'll walk away. So a couple of questions for us to kind of ask ourselves in response to this. Number one, are we only interested in Jesus when we need something or want something? For a lot of us, that's typically when we're, when we're driven to prayer, right? When we need something or want something. And if we don't need something and we don't want something at that that moment, we don't have a need to pray for a lot of us. Are we only interested in Jesus when we need something or want something? Question number two, are we willing to follow and trust Jesus during the hard times as well? And so many people have their faith challenged with difficult times and they fail that test, and they show themselves to be not a genuine believer. They, they, they wander. They walk away. They, 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 don't, they don't trust in God's goodness, and they respond in either frustration or anger or disappointment with what God has chosen to do, and so they, 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 they don't follow him anymore. And so what Jesus is wanting to know is, who is going to be willing to follow me when I'm dishing out the food? And also when I'm carrying you through a storm. Who's interested in me in both scenarios and not just the one where I'm satisfying something? Are you willing to follow me when everything else is being kind of stripped away and and the only thing left to do is trust me in the midst of that storm? Are we only interested in Jesus when we need something or want something? Are we willing to trust and follow Jesus during the hard times as well? And number two, fight to see the bigger picture of how God works. Seek or fight to see the bigger picture of how God works. And that's what he's challenging them there with when he says that you haven't seen the signs. You're not seeking me because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. They did see the signs. They just weren't connecting the dots. They weren't recognizing that the appropriate response here is what we saw from the disciples after the storm. You are the son of God. We are going to worship you. Instead, they see him as a source to to satisfy the things that they want. And so they come back looking for more. Will you give us what we want? We want to see the bigger picture of how God works. And if if we can get ourselves out of our particular situation get more of an aerial perspective of a bigger picture of how God works, we can stay encouraged in the midst of our difficulty and our trial. Um, if, if we can get that, that, that grasp, if we can wrap our minds around a bigger picture of how God works. And that's the, that's the bulk of really what I want to share with you this morning is these four points that are about to come, how to stay encouraged during hard times. Jesus is saying, you're only here because times are good, because I filled your bellies yesterday. And the implication is, are you willing to stay with me if I don't do that today? If I, if I don't fill you the way that you desire to be filled. If I were to carry, or if I were to put every single one of you in a storm right now, would you still be interested in following me? That's, that's what he's challenging the multitudes with. So how do we stay encouraged during these hard times that we oftentimes face? Number one, to remember that God works everything for his glory to remember that God works everything for his glory, which, which probably within this church sounds very cliche because we say this often, and so this isn't something new that, that you feel maybe prone to say, man, I gotta write that down because I've never heard that here, right? Like we talk all the time about God working for his glory and for our good. But I wanna share with you a couple of passages of scripture to maybe help you see it from a different angle than, than what we've maybe said previously. Okay, remember that God works everything for his glory. God directs everything in creation with the purpose of making his glory known, especially in and through the lives of his children. Okay, so our kids at Snowbird learned about God being their father, which is fantastic news for those of us who either don't have living fathers or who have broken fathers who may still be alive but are not involved in our life. That we we have. The, the greatest father possible in God, right? And, and, and as our loving father, he works particularly through his children to make his glory known over all the earth. So everything that he does in creation, all of creation is submitted to him and, and he uses creation for the purpose of, of not just getting glory, he already has glory. He wants to make that glory known to his creation. And he likes to particularly do it through his children. He does it in his children and through the lives of his children. Habakkuk 2.14 is, is the first passage that I wanna share with you. From the Old Testament, Habakkuk 2.14, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. All right, this is is an assured thing. This is something that we can take to the bank and know this is going to be accomplished. God will make known his glory. He will fill the earth with the knowledge of his glory. All right, Ephesians chapter one. (coughs) Ephesians chapter one, verse 11. In him... You were sealed in the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. What's happening in that passage here? Well, Paul's talking about the fact that everything that's happening in regards to the salvation of God's people, it happens through the counsel of his will. We have been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So we talked about how uh, God possesses all of the content in the present to remove our fears. Remember we said that when you're fearful, the only way to have your, your anxiety and your fear reduced is to sometimes have somebody come in and assure you that there's no reason to be afraid. And I use the illustration of, of Mally. So Mally comes into my room. She's fearful about her bedroom and what's happening there. I come in there with the assurance that there's nothing to be afraid of right? That, that I have a bigger perspective or a different perspective that can help her see she doesn't need to be afraid. And that's where Jesus shows up with the storm with the disciples and says, you don't have to be afraid because I'm here with you and I control everything around you, right? And so Jesus is, is, is working everything in the present, but he also uh, gives us promises about the future that are assured, that we don't have to question whether or not our lack of fear now will need to change in the future because he destines everything. He controls everything and is directing it to his planned purposes. And he tells us that here, that according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So he's directing everything into a particular direction and it's not just any direction, it's a direction that he has filtered through his perfect will so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. And then in him, you also... So those of us that have gotten saved later now in in the church's history, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, believed in him, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit, you have a guarantee of inheritance until you require possession of it to the praise of his glory. Again, the purpose of our salvation is for his glory, not just for our salvation. So he saves us, not just to get us out of hell, Not just to erase our sin, not just so that we can enjoy Him forever. He he does all those things because He ultimately gets glory from it. Everything He works for His glory, including the salvation of His children. So, any of us that sit here today and we are saved, we've responded to the gospel, whatever work God did to get you to that point, wherever He brought you, wherever He took you, wherever He placed you so that you could hear the gospel, he opened your heart to want to respond to that gospel. All those things were orchestrated through the counsel of his will so that he would receive glory from it. God works everything for his glory. And then after we are saved, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse six, he keeps working his glory through us even in the midst of difficult circumstances. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Look at what verse 6 says. So let's back up just a little bit. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So, Part of what happens when we come to salvation is God shines light into our hearts and we see his glory. We see his worth. We see his value. We see a need to turn our lives over to him. And then when that happens, it says, verse 7, we have this treasure, this salvation in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Then that verse 11, for we who live are always being given over to the death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. What's he saying there? He's saying that after you're saved, God continues to put you in positions to give glory to him through the way that you respond to things. And so he describes difficult situations and he doesn't even say that those situations won't lead to your death because he even says you're gonna be struck down but not destroyed, right? So even in death, even for a martyr overseas who is put to death today for being a Christian, he's not destroyed. He will, he, will, he, will, he will awaken in the presence of Jesus like we saw the martyrs in the book of Revelation doing. He will awaken to the glory of God. So when we go through difficult times, times where we are afflicted, we're not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken. Man, I mean, these are opportunities, it says, for us through our bodies to make Jesus known. So no matter what difficult time you're going through right now, no matter what difficult time your friend or your family member that you know is going through right now, it is an opportunity for God to receive glory through that situation. And he is working that situation. He is orchestrating that situation in a way that will result in him uh, getting glory And, and his glory being known, the glory that he already possesses being made known on this earth, as Habakkuk talks about. Now, does that mean we have to like these difficult times? Does it mean we have to love these difficult times? No, like we're not trying to present this morbid situation where we, we crave and want difficulty in our life. That's not what we're called to as Christians, right? We're not, we're not told to love the results of sin that come as, as a part of being a part of a fallen world. What it is challenging us to see is a different perspective that when we go through difficult times, it is an opportunity for us to seize and take hold of and say, this is a chance for me to make much of God. This is a chance for me to show that I trust him and I treasure him when my belly is not being filled and satisfied the way that I would choose. He's choosing to do it completely differently than I would do it. This is a chance for me to really trust him. Remember, number one, that God works everything for his glory. Number two, remember that hard times result in our good, particularly in the way of sanctification. Sanctification is being more, made more like Jesus, right? Sanctification is that process where we are being made into the image of God from a fallen being to a saved being. We're saved and we're being made to look more and more and more like Jesus, right? Right? Hard times are a tool that God uses to bring us to that point. Listen to what Romans chapter five says. Romans chapter five, verse one. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the greatest blessing that he could ever give us. Our bellies should feel full all the time in reading that verse, that that we have peace with God. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. I don't know that I'd ever seen that verse the way that I saw it this week in studying to teach today. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. What's that passage saying? It's saying that as we mature as Christians, Where do we wanna get to? We wanna get to the point where we are rejoicing in this hope or this promise that God gets glory. We're not rejoicing in, in anything that we get, we're rejoicing in what God is going to receive, the knowledge of his glory going forth. Our football coach challenges our team all the time. Would you guys be willing to win a state championship if you didn't receive any glory for it individually as a player? If, if all of us could come together as a team and win a state championship, would you be satisfied in winning a state championship if you didn't receive any glory for it? Some guys would say yes, some guys would say no. Some guys would say, if I'm not getting the recognition for winning the state championship, then I don't really care about the state championship. If it doesn't result in me getting a scholarship or if it doesn't result in me breaking records, then I'm not interested in it. From a spiritual side, are we willing to have God do anything and everything in our life if it means he receives glory for it? Are we willing for God to take anything away from our life if it means he's gonna be glorified by doing it? That's a hard question for us to say yes to if we really think about what that could mean. Because the correct answer is yes, that we should be willing to say that and do that, right? But, but I don't know how many of us could honestly say, anything and everything, I have that much hope and rejoicing in the glory of God. When you get saved, you're not automatically mature enough to feel that way. And so Paul goes on to say, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Okay, so you might sit here and say, Adam, I don't, I don't know that I could say that I hope in the glory of God like that. I hope in the goodness of God and what he may do for me. I don't know that I'm willing to say that God could do anything and everything in my life and me be okay with it if it means he's gonna get glory from it. Because some of us might say, "Man, I mean, there's a couple things that are off limits right now. Like, I don't know that I'd be willing for God to take that from me. I don't know that I could say that fully right now. I don't know that I could tell you, man, if God took all of my kids away, but if he were to receive glory from that, that I would be able to rejoice because I'm hoping in his glory so much. I don't know if I could do that. But I think what Paul's saying is that we want to get to the point where we rejoice in the hope of God's glory so much that that's our our primary focus. Not our comfort, not our desires, not our plans, but the plan for him to receive maximum glory, for this earth to have the knowledge of God's glory fill it. That means I'm more concerned about the earth being filled with his glory than my belly being filled with my plans and my desires. Paul says, you may not be there. Well, how do we get there? Well, he describes this process of, we, we go through times of suffering because suffering produces endurance or steadfastness and that steadfastness produces character uh, and, and that character leads to this type of hope. So how do we get to the point where we could boldly and confidently say, anything and everything, God, it's all open to you. I just want you to receive the glory that you are due to get to that point we're going to have to go through some times of suffering for God to change our character to increase our steadfastness and our endurance to where we can rejoice only in the hope of his glory that's what the that's what he's saying there in Romans 5 and then James 1 and 1 Peter 1 go on to echo that mindset James chapter 1 says Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. He's essentially saying the same thing, that that trials come, they produce steadfastness, then steadfastness has this full effect to where you reach the point where you don't believe you're lacking anything. 1 Peter chapter 1. Verse six. In this year you rejoice though now for a little while. If necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And Peter has this hope that that through trials, through hard times, it will result in the type of faith that is glorying and honoring and praising Jesus the day that he comes back. No matter what he brings us through, no matter what he takes from us, no matter what storm he places us in, that we are so concerned about his glory that that's where we are rejoicing. That is what we are hoping in, that promise that this earth will be filled with that knowledge. Number three, Remember that ministry opportunities flow from our experiences. So again, we're talking about how do, I, how do I stay encouraged in the midst of difficulties and trials? I find myself in the middle of a sea, in the middle of a storm. How do I stay encouraged there? Let me remember that God's working everything for his glory. Let me remember that hard times result in my good. It, it moves me to the point where I care more and more about God's glory. Then number three, remember that ministry opportunities flow from our experiences. The, the things that I go through give me more ability, a better sense of how to comfort other people. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4, Verse three, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. Paul has this perspective that whatever he's going through, it will benefit somebody else when he comes out on the other side that he is going to have learned ways to trust God in the midst of storms that he will then be able to pass on to others, not just from a knowledge-based standpoint, but from an experiential-based standpoint to say, I can promise you that he is worth trusting because he carried me through something similar. And it doesn't even have to be the exact same situation. It's not that we, we have to go through certain things or else we don't have anything to say to somebody who's going through that situation. The more we go through hard times, though, the better equipped we are to help other people who go through hard times. Don't lose sight of the fact that when you're going through a hard time, God's gonna get glory from it. You're gonna come out on the other end, the better for it, more like Christ for it, and that you're also gonna have greater opportunities to minister to others because of what he just took you through. And then number four, remember that God's promises are sufficient to sustain us remember that God's promises are sufficient to sustain us. Sometimes when we start going through a really difficult time, a unique difficult time, it's almost like we, we want to abandon and throw out everything that we've ever heard and we want to find something new to kind of hang our hat on. That, that everything that we've been given previously is not enough to carry us through this new situation. And Acts 27 helps us to see that that's not true. And I want to close with this passage. We referenced it last week when we talked about storms and us needing to be okay with storms that come from obedience, right? That there's storms that may come into our life, hard times, difficulties, trials, sufferings because of our sin. Man, let's try to avoid those as much as possible. Let's don't, let's don't increase our hardships because of our poor choices. But even as we seek to be obedient, we have to recognize that that doesn't exempt us from storms. Storms still come. And we can be okay with the ones that come in response to our obedience. And that's exactly what happens with Paul here. Acts chapter 27 is the the passage where Paul sets sail for Rome. And I wanna read the entire chapter to you because I think it's important for us to see how does Paul stay encouraged through this story? And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Andrum Tidium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and, he cared, and be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Snidus As And as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmone. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lassia. Now, if you're, if you're just kind of reading through that, you see multiple times difficulty and hardship. It was difficult for them to keep pushing forward in this journey. Now, Paul's a prisoner. He's being taken to Rome. So, so there's some, some evil and sinful aspects to this, and maybe that's why God's pushing back a little bit here, but this is not an easy road to Rome. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete facing both southwest and northwest and spend the winter there. Now, when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Creek close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Kata, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then fearing that we would run aground on the Citrus, they lowered the gear and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they drew the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, men, you should have listened to me And not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told but we must run aground on some island. Now, some of you are sitting here and you've never read this passage, right? You've never read this chapter or you don't remember. But I can guarantee you, if I went around and did a poll, how many of you think Paul and his shipmates make it and don't die? I venture to say, everybody would say, yeah, I totally expect them not to die and, and, and to make it. Why? Well, because Paul just said he heard from God and God said that was gonna, was gonna happen, right? And we don't even know how the story ends for some of us, But most of us would say, I fully expect for God to keep this promise, even though we don't see the result yet. When the 14th night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors suspected they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength. For not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were all in 276 persons in the ship, and when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow struck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. Now, what sustained Paul through this whole storm? Well, it's this message that he gets, right? This message that says, you're gonna make it to Rome. You are gonna appear before Caesar. It's a promise that you will survive this, right? The key to this passage though is that this is not the first time Paul was promised this. This is not a new piece of revelation. This is not a new promise given to Paul to sustain him. This is an old promise that he's reminded of. If you flip back to Acts chapter 23, verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, this is not an angel, this is Jesus Jesus standing by him and said, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. He's already been given this promise. So if Paul is even wavering at all on this ship about whether he's to die or not die, he doesn't have to, because he's been given a promise that says he won't, that he has to make it to Rome. He has to testify about Jesus to Caesar. He has to get there. And this, this, this message that comes to him on the boat is simply a reminder. What's the point of that? What I'm giving you this morning is not new revelation. It's not new information. It is a reminder to you of promises that have already been made that I hope to remind you of this morning to help carry you through any storms that you're gonna face. You don't need new information. You don't need stuff that you've never heard of, you've never heard about. You don't need some, some radically new insight to scripture that you've never had previously to get you through whatever it is you're going through. What you need is a good reminder of promises that have already been made, that God's working everything for his glory, that, that he, he works good for you in hard times. He sanctifies you and he brings you to the point as you mature to where your greatest hope and your greatest joy is his glory and not your filled belly. It's, it's the promise that you're going to come out better equipped to minister to other people. These are the promises that help sustain us through hard times. That, that God's gonna get glory from it, that I'm gonna come out on the better side of it having matured and grown in my faith. I'm going to have greater ministry opportunities to encourage others to help them through whatever it is they are going through. And to get through hard times, I have to remember that God's promises are sufficient to sustain me. That those three promises ought to carry us through any trial that we're gonna face in the near future. That if God's gonna get glory from it, and I'm gonna mature through it, and other people are going to benefit from it, that's how we can finally get to a point where we say, I rejoice in my sufferings. I don't love my sufferings, I don't like my sufferings, I don't prefer my sufferings, but I can rejoice in them because I know God has promised to get glory from it, He has promised to mature me in it, and He has promised to help others after he carries me through it. The application for us, which of these four truths do you struggle to remember most during hard times? And what can you do to change that moving forward? Which of these four truths do you struggle to remember most during hard times? And what can you do to change that moving forward? Number two, what spiritual truths can you take to encourage someone this week that is going through a hard time What have we talked about today that would be good content, good material to pass on to somebody else that you know is going through a hard time? What promises do they need to be reminded of? Which of these four truths do you struggle to remember most? How can you change that moving forward? What can you do differently next time you go through a hard time to remember one of these four truths? What spiritual truths can you take to encourage someone this week that is going through a hard time? Family worship questions. What are some hard times we go through as individual members of this family? What does it mean for your your eight-year-old, your 10-year-old, your 13-year-old to go through hard times. It's different than your hard times, I'm sure. What does it it mean for a 13-year-old to suffer and to have trials and difficulties? What promises has God made to us that can help us during those hard times? What promises does a 13-year-old need to remember? Probably the same promises, maybe just packaged a little bit differently. Let's pray together. God, we we thank you for your word. Uh, God, I pray that this short passage would cause us all to pause. Jesus addressing the multitudes and saying, you're only here because I filled your belly yesterday. God, I pray that you would protect us from only coming to you, only desiring you, only wanting to follow you if you follow our agenda for our life. God, help us to see and realize that you're far more concerned about filling this earth with your glory than our bellies. But God, help us to see that as you work for your glory, it means great good for us. That you don't do them separately. That when you work for your glory, it results in the good of your children. God, help us to realize that that in order to get us to see this bigger picture, in order to get us to have this type of perspective, you're gonna bring us through some trials and some difficulties and some hard times. God, help us to realize that through it, you're going to produce endurance and character that is going to result in the type of hope that's described in Romans 5, a hope that rejoices in your glory. God, we wanna be the type of people that can stand confidently and say, do anything and everything in our life if it means your glory. Nothing's off limits. Nothing will will raise frustration. Nothing will raise disappointment for us that we will rejoice so much in your glory that we are okay with you doing anything and everything in our life. God, I recognize that most of us aren't there yet. I recognize that myself is not there yet. God, help us to realize that to get us to that point, which is your goal, that you saved us and your desire is to mature us. God, help us to realize to get us to that point, it's gonna mean difficulties and trials. God, help us to to seize opportunity with those difficulties and trials. Help us to seize opportunities to grow and to mature. Help us to see that we're gonna have the opportunity to encourage others based on what you teach us and how you grow us through our own difficulties. God, help us to cling to your promises. Help us to to, to rely upon them, to see them as our, our, our sustaining power, that you promise things. And God, as confident as we were in reading Acts 27, that when you said you were going to do something, we fully believe that Paul and his sailors would live at the end of the chapter. God, help us to have that same type of confidence about our own trials, that you will work glory, you will produce good in us, you will give us opportunities to use it in the lives of others. Help us to be that confident about our own storm like we were with Paul's. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.